Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. This could be the moment where we are beginning to see a kind of securitized response to the climate crisis that comes out of a securitized energy response. If we get the parameters of that transition right, so far, all political leaders around Europe have pledged that the extended use of coal-fired plants is of temporary nature, right? The current measures will set us back, back in the net zero transition by a year or two, but we can make up that ground if we use that momentum to accelerate the green energy transition. And this is where high politics, geopolitics and low politics come together. Right? This is where insulating your homes, uh, reducing energy consumption, improving energy efficiency, dull, boring, low politics becomes of critical importance. As a, a study by Carbon Brief, one of the, the fine think tanks in the UK that looks at carbon data has shown, had Britain not got rid of what uh, David Cameron once famously called the green crap, that is the home insulation program that was up and running until his government reduced the funding, we could have reduced gas imports in the UK by now by 13%. That would have eliminated all Russian gas imports already and much more. So there is an argument to be made, therefore, that we need to merge those low politics, those boring politics of the climate mitigation strategy with the high politics of our energy independence that we seek. Okay, I think I need to come to the conclusion. So, where does this leave us? I think it's clear that there is a strategic dimension, therefore, to energy and climate policy. And for me, this means, first of all, that the net zero transition should not be seen in isolation, but needs to be made an integral part of our energy security strategy. To play one off against the other is, is not very far-sighted, and we need to recognize that despite short-term priorities that may get in the way, the two work together, go in the same direction. This produces very tangible results on a geopolitical platform too, because we need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel exporters. Petro-states like Russia that abuse their uh, power in global energy markets need to be countered on many levels, but particularly on the energy front, and that ought to be both an energy and the climate. Uh, priority. But beyond that, as I outlined before, we need to also integrate the sort of strategic thinking around tipping points into general uh, forward planning for climate policy. We are still stuck in too much of a linear mode. We need to prepare for those tipping points as and when they hit us. And that calls, therefore, at a national level, at a European level, at an international level, perhaps for new bodies, new committees of strategic foresight for extreme climate risks. We need to prepare for the acceleration of those risks that I've outlined before, and that is an urgent strategic task. This is not going to be easy. And so looking now at the audience that comes from a more climate perspective, we also need to look at the strategic challenges that we face in the net zero transition. First of all, the rush into green energy means there will be ever more competition for strategic minerals and that will need careful planning. We are not there yet. 
we haven't got a global governance system for dealing with any potential shortages of those strategic resources. Will we uh, end up in international conflict over those resources? That is to be avoided. We will have to deal with the stranded assets problem. There will be countries that will face, will face economic decline as a consequence of the net zero transition. Some of them quite far-sighted. Think of the UAE, the Gulf states, they're preparing for that transition. Saudi Arabia, somewhat behind. Russia, clearly not interested in that agenda. We need to think about the security complex that this creates. We, um, and we need to think about the financial stability that, that is at risk. We'll be allowed to engage in geoengineering. Which great powers will have the means and the will to conduct geoengineering to slow down global warming? Will there be a global solution to this? Or will it be left to some major powers, the United States, China, that will do this on their own? There's a real risk that unilateralism will prevail. And that, again, creates huge risks for the world. Climate adaptation. A lot of countries will need to adapt. We've already baked in 1.3, 1.4 degrees of warming. And more is to come. There will be countries that need help with climate adaptation. Will we help them or will a resurgent nationalism rule the world where every country will look after its own? Uh, food security is going to rise on the agenda. It's already, uh, we, saw, we saw this from the Ukraine war, but will lead to greater instability. And finally, migration, as mentioned before, may yet end up on, on a high level agenda. So, so I think there's good reason to argue that the merging of these agendas of strategic thinking and climate mitigation is urgently needed, and both sides can learn from that. May I conclude, though, with a message to the students in the room who's doing strategic studies? Can I see a show of hands at the end? Ah, I was hoping for more. <laughs> Here's my last thought before you, um, before we carry on. You'll be familiar with the sort of standard reading that you get when you do strategic studies. These are the greats of strategic thinking. There are, there are of course, on your reading list. In the wrong order, they should be. Two of them alive, two uh, uh, have already passed away. Um, <laughs> the order in which I don't know how, how your syllabus is structured, you'll, you'll, you'll have to tell me later. I would suggest do carry on reading them. And how, how could I possibly suggest that we need to replace any of these great? But perhaps we need to expand the strategic reading. We need to throw some more text on the reading list. There's Rachel Carson. Her book, uh, Silent Spring, was published 60 years ago. We're celebrating the anniversary this year. Barbara Ward's book about that paved the way for the 1972 uh, Stockholm summit is 50 years old. Mandana Shiba, who put global justice at the heart of the climate debate, is still alive and still working in that area. And Naomi Oreskes at Harvard University has done excellent work to unmask climate skeptics and their corporate lobbies. So here's a suggestion for a, an updated security studies reading list. And Christopher, I'll drop some books off at LSE Ideas if, if they're not there yet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So here we are going straight to, to another person talking. Um, it's actually quite late for me. You know, normally I give my lectures, I think, in the morning, but hopefully I can talk some sense. Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, 
uh, as Robert already said, I do do quite a lot of work on securitization. Um, and therefore, one of the themes I'll be talking about is the effect of the war in Ukraine on the securitization of climate change. And then the second aspect I want to talk about is the effect of the war on climate security. So um, security in, in two different um, understandings, once as a social and political practice, as in securitization, and once actually as a condition of being secure. So they're quite different because obviously you may be able to achieve climate security through securitization, but securitization may actually also have the opposite effect. Um, so those are a couple of the themes I will briefly mention. Um, perhaps should have had a PowerPoint. I haven't got one. I didn't sort of realize what the format would be. Um, so I'm sort of going to be reading, more or less reading this off so I don't lose the plot. Um, so let's talk about um, the effect of the war in Ukraine on the securitization of climate change. Um, and the securitization of climate change really means uh, raising uh, the issue of climate change to the top of the political agenda, where it would then be addressed using extraordinary means. Um, and in, in Robert's book, um, which of course I read in preparation for this, Environmentalism in Global International Society, it's called, um, he shows that thus far in the world really, um, the securitization of climate change is at the rhetorical level, which is also what he said a couple of times to the presentation. Um, and I think a way to, to, to capture this quite vividly is if you think about the European Union and also quite a lot of states in 2019, certainly before COVID, um, all were busy declaring a climate emergency. I don't know if any one of you remember this, you know, that we are now living or going through a climate emergency. But uh, in all of those cases, I would say, no extraordinary, extraordinary measures um, followed that declaration of the threat. Um, even though, of course, um, I, I would say that in large parts of um, Europe, certainly, that um, climate threat is pretty much accepted, which would mean, you know, that what in securitization theory is called the audience, which we can take to be the electorate, um, actually accepts that. You know, most people think, yes, climate change actually is a threat. So if there is the declaration and the acceptance, it would, according to the theory, allow that extraordinary measures are adopted. But that hasn't happened. So then we can look at the reason why not, um, I, I haven't really got time to go into the why not, but certainly one of the things um, that did come up in the talk and also I think in the book is this issue of well, what would that actually look like? You know, I think we have some difficulty imagining what extraordinary measures would look like that we, we haven't seen before. Um, but I think it could be something like banning polluting industries, restrictions on a flying for pleasure or for business, um, restrictions on the use of personal transport, um, it's kind of the sort of restrictions we saw under COVID as well. Obviously, with a different purpose, but the you know work from home because 
um, we need to cut down on carbon emissions. If everybody goes into work in their car, then that obviously raises um, carbon emissions. Um, I would say that over the past decade or so, this rhetorical securitization of climate change um, has become quite established. You know, we are used to the phrase um, climate security, for instance, or um, even the climate emergency. Whereas when I look back, when I did my PhD on uh, environmental security in 2007, I finished, um, it was very much, what are you doing? Environmental security, what's that? People had no real concept of that. And, um, you know, here we are not that many years later and climate security is, um, is very well known, I would say. Um, but I would also say that climate change as a security threat comes in waves. So what I do with my students at the beginning of um, a new term, I often ask the students, what do you think is the most important security threat to your country of origin and to the UK? And the list is always quite broad, but the list is also usually informed by what's going on right now. Um, and climate change is very often replaced by the big security threat. So climate change is replaced by COVID. You know, you will hear of climate change as security threat before COVID, but not so much during COVID. And I think that's also why a lot of analysts or a lot of people who care about these issues, they then find it necessary to link the issue they care about to the big security issue, which in a way is what we're doing here tonight, right? Um, so, I would expect that climate change um, as a security threat, the securitization of climate change would be sidelined by the Ukraine war. And I mean, I haven't done this in much detail, but I looked a little bit at speeches by you know, relevant politicians, for example, van der Leyen's um, State of the Union um, doesn't mention climate change to the same degree as it has done in the past. Here you might say there, well, that's because the point's already been made and she did mention it in previous years and it's been accepted and established. But I think it goes right the way through. For instance, if we recall that um, the IPCC, I think this is the, um, the sixth assessment report, the second working group, they uh, finalized um, uh, one of these reports, um, yeah, the second working group that was on the 28th of February um, this year. Obviously that didn't get a lot of press. It didn't get a lot as much press as it would have done ordinarily because of the events um, in Ukraine. Similarly, um, NATO, NATO was mentioned earlier, um, NATO this year um, uh, turned out its uh, NATO 2030 strategy and uh, climate change is a part of that. But again, that got, I think, uh, less press than it might have done in another year. Um, so it seems to me that um, security threats are always ranked in some sort of importance, you know, down to imminence. Um, the, the Russian threat, I guess, is in the here and now. The climate change threat still feels some distance away. But perhaps it's also a little bit what we know. You know, we, war is a more tangible thing than climate change um, to most people. Um, so I think we can say that 
while the securitization of climate change was imperfect or really incomplete or unsuccessful before the war, um, I would say that the war has made successful securitization of climate change even less likely. And then you can ask, well, is this a problem? You know, is this a problem that we no longer have so much in the way of this kind of rhetoric? Um, and I would say, well, it's a problem only if we think that securitization will actually lead to climate security and climate security here as a state of being. Um, and in the literature, there's quite a lot of reason to believe that that is not the case. And this is because um, climate security has so many different interpretations. So it depends on who speaks climate security or performs climate security. Um, so for instance, um, the military, and again, I mentioned the military because um, Robert mentioned the military earlier. I mean, they were actually um, leaders in the field of environmental and climate security. But by climate security, they don't necessarily mean what we think of as climate security. You know, we probably think of climate security as making the climate secure for people and animals and plants that live on planet Earth, that we all sort of live in some sort of better harmony. But the military actually cares about does um, environmental degradation or climate change affect their ability to provide military security? So for instance, you know, do hurricanes damage military bases? Does sea level rise affect um, the security of military bases? So it's a very different view of what climate security actually means. Um, and I don't want to say it's bad, it's a, it's a bad interpretation of climate security, but it's certainly not as holistic as we might want it to be. And so therefore, um, whether or not um, climate change is securitized, it's actually not necessarily um, a good thing or a, a positive contribution to achieving climate security. Okay, so let me now turn to this second argument, which is the effect of the war on climate security. And this time I do mean the, the sort of positive, not positive, it's the positive holistic view just described. So the view that making the climate genuinely safe. Um, so in Robert's talk, he sort of presents this view that the Ukraine war is an opportunity to achieve climate security. Um, and I would say there is a possibility of that. Um, like Robert, I'm originally from Germany. And I would say, especially in Germany, um, green values and sort of care for the environment runs perhaps slightly or is, is, is more established to a degree, I don't know if that is correct than, than here. Certainly um, there is a, um, you know, the, the Green Party, for instance, is doing quite well in uh, nearly all of the different uh, lender. And um, so I don't, in other words, want to pour cold water on what you've been saying in terms of, you know, the possibility of uh, achieving climate security. Um, but if I agree with everything you say, I guess we don't really have much of a discussion. So let me um, let me say or put put forward a few points um, 
against the argument that the war will lead to a greener energy security strategy. And I've got, I think, about five points. Um, the first one is um, that actually when you look at what's been happening uh, in terms of um, the adaptation that uh, Germany in particular, and this is very heavily German focused, um, is that, that coal is actually kept going. That's the first one. So Germany promised to phase out coal uh, by 2030. But obviously, because of this energy crisis, they had to reactivate some of the already mothballed or destined for mothballing plants and um, are keeping coal going very likely now till 2045. And the same is true, I think, of nuclear, not which, uh, which quite such a long, um, uh, I don't think for such a long time, but certainly they haven't quite committed to closing all of the nuclear power plants just yet. Then the second one is, um, I don't think, and this actually almost contradicts what I said earlier about the Germans being uh, very green, and now I'm going to say that there's discontent among the German population towards these measures, right? Essentially, people aren't happy to pay the price for energy that they will have to pay. Um, and this is especially the case in East Germany, where apparently 65% are actually for the reopening of Nord Stream 2. Um, and I don't think that they would accept or very happily accept um, this sort of green, expensive green um, uh, energy policy. Um, then the third thing is that, of course, politicians try and capitalize on the situation. And the uh, main uh, opposite, the leader of the opposition, uh, Merz, who's from the CDU, CDU um, he, of course, um, has a different view of what uh, the uh, energy security strategy should look like and calls this sort of uh, greening of the uh, energy uh, suggested by the um, SPD and, and co as essentially a threat to the economy. You know, it's madness. We shouldn't be doing it. It's a threat to the economy. Therefore, of course, also playing towards the fears of some of the population and we have to remember that uh, during the last election, there was only a nine-seat difference between the uh, SPD and CDU. So it's pretty tight margins. And there's a question, you know, can, um, I mean, assuming that the SPD would want to remain in government, can they actually um, continue with this line? At the moment, all of the public opinion polls have um, the CDU 10 points ahead of the SPD. Now, whether that is directly related to that, I do not know. Um, then another point uh, against Robert's argument is this uh, question of, are the green alternatives really green? Um, so one thing we should know is that the European Union, and you had some graphs in terms of what the European Union wants to achieve, um, is that they recently included gas into its green finance taxonomy, um, which is this labeling of um, natural gas as um, essentially a green energy source that could then be um, supported and subsidized. It's essentially, I, I suppose, a form of greenwashing of this particular energy. 
Um, and then, of course, we can also look at the green energy tra transition in general and ask how climate friendly that actually is. And then we come to points such as um, how do they actually get these rare minerals out of the stone that will be needed for um, all of us driving around in electric cars, for example, and that is actually hugely carbon intensive. So you mentioned, you know, the conflict, the possibility of conflict, but actually um, uh, I have one statistic here. This comes from Nature Geoscience, um, is that greenhouse gas emissions associated with primary mineral and metal production was equivalent to approximately 10% of the total global energy-related greenhouse gases in 2018, right? So, but that's 2018. So we would obviously just expect that to go up, you know, as we need more of these minerals. Um, and there are actually quite a lot of other negative effects for the environment as well from, uh, from this kind of resource extraction, including um, acidification of the rivers, um, and so on and so forth. Um, so, in summary, um, I don't think that the war will lead to either climate security or to the securitization of climate change. Um, instead, the war will and already has sidelined these and other security concerns until either one of three things happens. Um, the war stops and allows climate change as a security issue to resurface, which I you know, said earlier, it seems to do, um, or two, some sort of really extreme climate disaster happens, some sort of 9-11 of, of climate change, um, or three, there will be, there is, there is unilateral geoengineering on a large scale because I think that would wake um, people up in, in that way. If one of those things happens, then the successful securitization of climate change is likely. Thank you. Thank you very much to uh, both of our speakers. Well, you were kind enough Robert, to put my picture up. Uh, so I should uh, repay the compliment and ask you the two questions you planted. Uh, that I should ask you, but I'm not going to do that because time is moving on and really the audience have a, a chance um, to to speak. So will you please, there's a microphone, I think, going around. Is there or not? No, there are microphones. Is there a microphone? Yes. Is there uh, yeah. anyone on the other side? Microphones. Yeah. If uh, you could uh, just say who you are, by the way, very briefly, um, and then ask your question. And I'll ask both speakers to address it if they wish to do that. Okay, so I have one here. Okay, good. Um, hi, I'm Matthew Johnson, um, recent graduate from LSE and uh, I'm an analyst with London Politica. Um, you were mentioning before and in the context of uh, Ukraine war, um, the weaponization of energy. And I think that that's something that should be considered uh, for the future for the green transition. Um, you know, case by example being uh, Rosatom, uh, Russia's nuclear energy powerhouse. Uh, that's something that is slowly making its way into many countries across the globe. Um, it's also another way that Russia could also do the exact same thing in the future. Um, and in the context of, say, China manufacturing solar panels, that's also something that could be weaponized. Is that something that it, we should be or could 
actually prepare for in our strategies for policymakers and so forth in the future. Um, so we don't see uh, a repetition uh, or a repeat of history uh, down the line uh, once we hopefully achieve uh, our green transition. Thank you. Let's take another question. You can decide which ones you want to answer. Yes, back. Yeah, I'm sorry to add to the German focus of this uh, talk, but I'm also German and Felix, LSE student, um, LSE student. Um, and I one detail that I thought of kind of missed here is that um, with the current cost of living crisis that has been sparked by the increased energy um, prices in Germany, especially, uh, Olaf Scholz has announced that they're not going to increase the carbon price that was expected to rise by five cents for next year. They have cut that, so it's not going to rise. And um, I would kind of love to hear your thoughts about um, how climate change also causes like multiple crises that lay on top of each other and how um, maybe even these like situations, which I agree with you that um, the Ukraine war basically is accelerating the switch to green energies, like how also the counter side that it may, might also inhibit the green transition. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, let's take one more on the left here. Hi, thank you very much to both speakers for your insights. Um, shifting the conversation a bit away from Europe, um, uh, just wanted to address uh, your points on climate security. Um, I, I know, Robert, you mentioned that like a lot of times, you know, actually the problems to be assigned with migration can be assigned on um, state failures. How do we, you know, maybe multilaterally or like as Europe, uh, address the legacies that are left behind that causes these state failure issues and causes a lot of these countries to, you know, both suffer conflicts, uh, intrastate or interstate conflicts with climate issues, but also still be, you know, heavily producing, like, let's say oil. So I, examples that come to my mind would be like Tajikistan or like Nigeria. So, yeah. Okay, Robert, would you like to start? Yeah, thank you for these questions. And, and I'm glad you, you pushed it a little bit out of the European dimension as well, which is very important here. I'll start with the first question, Matthew's question about the weaponization of energy. I think that's, that's the key point that I, I was alluding to when I was arguing that this crisis offers an opportunity because we have realized out of our blindfolds, the strategic blindfolds in Europe, when we allowed energy to be treated like a normal commodity that you can trade in the open market and you allow yourself to be become dependent on just one major supplier to the east of Europe, we've realized that that just won't do. So the current search for energy independence is partly driven by that desire to drive down opportunities for future opponents to use energy dependence in that way. So it's, it's about reducing weaponization opportunities. But the interesting thing is, and that's where, where I'd like to hear what Rita has to say, this is the opening for climate arguments, because the most energy independence you can ever get is through renewable energy, right? Your wind turbine, your solar installation. Yes, you're still partly dependent on, on global supplies of certain key minerals and so on. And I, I, I think that's something we need to think about. 
That, but this gives you maximum energy independence and also reduces the chances of weaponizing energy supplies. That's why I think this is the, the crunch moment for Europe where we need to realize that energy independence is best served by radical climate policy. Um, so so the, the, the threat you describe is not going to go away, but we can do a lot to address these concerns. We're already doing it with regard to China. China has in the past kindly offered to finance nuclear power plants in the UK. I think it's becoming apparent that that might also be a strategic miscalculation if it was allowed to go ahead. So there are many ways in which we need to look at those energy independences, interdependencies and how they give leverage to part uh, countries that perhaps we no longer consider as friends or, or partners. So I think that is an opportunity that arises. Um, shall I shall yeah. I take one more before and then, of course, Rita, you'll come in where, where you feel. Um, so so the, the point about climate producing multiple crises, it's, that's, a, that's a very important point, a tricky one to answer because, of course, climate change is that kind of all pervasive phenomenon that's playing into a lot of different other crises. It's causing environmental stress, it's causing social stress, it's causing distributional conflicts. It's aggravating a lot of the things that are already wrong in many places. It's, it's a problem that's unequally distributed around the world. Not everyone around the planet will be faced with, with uh, catastrophic climate change. In some parts of the world, at least in the next five or 10 years, you might even see your livelihoods improve. So there are deep inequalities implicated in, in the way climate change is playing out. And that's, as I, as I think you, you alluded to, makes the, the treatment of climate change so much more difficult because you, you get into the other conflicts that are already there and then that are clearly getting in the way of effective solutions. Um, all the more reason to accelerate the net zero transition, all the more reason to deal with the, the con uh, distributional consequences of climate change. So when we talk about climate adaptation, that's the one agenda that's still not dealt with sufficiently. We need to think about where are the people around the world that need urgent help to deal with climate consequences. That's a huge debate, and I, I don't want to get into that now, but that's, that, that reinforces what you said, that climate change, if left untreated, if left unhindered, will, will aggravate the politics that, that we're dealing with at the moment. Why didn't you answer the third question on the attention? Okay, so so outside Europe, um, there are plenty of countries that have fossil fuel legacies that need to be dealt with. Uh, interesting enough, you mentioned Nigeria, which of course suffers from a certain form of resource curse, where it would be beneficial for its own economic development to wean the country off reliance on, on fossil fuels. Um, if there's one country where fossil fuel reliance has gone badly wrong, and surely that is Russia. It's a failing Petra state. 45% of Russia's federal budget is derived from the earnings from fossil fuel exports. 45% last year in 2021. That is a Petra state, uh, if, if I've ever seen one. And it's failing because it has become so dependent on that, because it's unable to wean itself off that. In, instead of emerging as it once was once called. Remember the, the days when when Goldman Sachs described Russia as part of the BRICS, right? Um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't ring so good these days to put it next to China and India as an emerging economy. It has, if anything, regressed. So I think a lot of these countries would do well to wean themselves off that. There are a few good examples we can look to. 
um, uh, think of the United Arab Emirates. They are still deriving huge economic gain from selling fossil fuels, but are already sh starting the shift away towards alternative energy sources, but also alternative industrial capacities. And for that reason, it's interesting to see that the UAE is going to host the next climate conference, the one after that's happening in Egypt next year. They see that as an opportunity. So I think we need to do a lot to help those countries move away for reasons not only to do with climate change, but general development as well. Um, I only have a small comment really to, to Matthew's question, which is about this weaponization issue, largely because, again, I disagree with you on Good. this because I, I think that we will go, you know, headlong into these dependencies again. I think that we will develop, you know, the, as I said, the electric cars, bring that uh, technology up, everybody will drive one, these minerals become, will become scarce, they will be produced mainly in only one region or a handful of countries. I don't have my phone. If I had my phone here, I would have already Googled where is copper mainly and that kind of thing, but I can't do that. So I have to confess that I don't know where these minerals are. But I do, you know, I can just see this, that we will make ourselves dependent on one or two minerals or maybe say five or six that are globally scarce, but abundant in a few problematic regions. And I don't think there is any foresight planning for that because we're so concerned about climate change right now that we're just going into the one direction. So what do we need to do? You, you will need to inform policymakers that this is what's going to happen. Or the other option is ultimately we all need to consume just a little bit less. You know, that's the other thing. Not to have exactly the same kind of lifestyle that we have now, but in a sort of green way, because perhaps that isn't possible. We'll have to be microwaving turkey for Christmas. <laughs> and unfortunately, un unhappy prospect if you think about it. Um, there are vegetarian got, options. There are vegetarian yeah. options. Yes. Christopher will there send are. you a couple of recipes for Christmas. I'm sorry, I'm sure Henry Kissinger would also be very happy to send you some as, as well. Um, we've only got 10 minutes. Uh, some questions on this side of the room, please. Yes, and third row from the front. Hello. So this is Sudarshan. I'm an MPA student at the LSE, and uh, I was also studying strategic studies uh, one year back. So my question is to you, sir. Uh, when we consider strategy, uh, strategic issues, and then when we look at countries like Maldives who are facing a mortal threat from rising sea levels, so from that perspective, when we compare uh, the issues in Europe, um, do we feel that there is a discrimination in terms of climate response among countries? And if so, how does it play out at the strategic level? Mm -hmm. Second, can this uh, lag between the powers of the country be played as an opportunity to, uh, as you said, an entry point into climate policy? So these are my two questions. Thank you. And there's another one. Yes, right at the, the back. There are two questions, two people, one behind the other. So we have to leave it at that. But you and then the person behind you, and then we'll go to the speaker. Uh, thanks. Uh, Sahil, University of Cambridge. Uh, given the strategic importance that China has, both in terms of uh, its own country, but the regions where it has influence for strategic minerals, 
required for the climate transition, do you think uh, the West and the G7's antagonistic stance towards China is uh, hugely detrimental towards uh, climate transition um, and has, uh, I guess, spillover effects onto third sector countries um, that aren't involved in this? Yes, Liz Truss has just added geoliberalism to the geos, geoeconomics and geopolitics. I think that's probably involved in your question there. Yes. Good evening. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I'm Victor and I'm French student of LSE. Uh, I had a question about uh, degrowth because uh, more and more specialists agree on the fact that degrowth, uh, at least in well-developed well country, would be a good solution to tackle either climate issues, but also resource and biodiversity uh, concerns. What do you think about it? Do you think it's avoidable, unavoidable or not? And uh, in terms of strategic issues, what would a degrowing world look like? Rita, do you want to start off? Not particularly. No. <laughs> um, good, thank you. So I take it degrowth is not one of Liz Truss's new phrases. Um, that, that I think, IMF may fall I think I've just found a member of the anti-growth coalition that she has recently um, uh, complained about. Welcome uh, to that coalition. Um, degrowth is, yeah, it's taken off in a big way. There are more and more academics writing about it, lots of campaigners using it as a way to counter the narrative that we need to grow, 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 as uh, Truss recently said, as, as, as our main imp uh, imperative. It has a certain appeal as a slogan, as a concept, as a campaign, because it alludes to the fact that there are certain natural limits to the economy, right? We, we don't have an unlimited atmosphere. We are polluting it with CO2, and there's a limit to how much we can pump uh, pollution into the atmosphere. There's a limit to how much we can exploit global fish stocks, right? So, so there, there's an intuitive sense in which degrowth is needed. We need to stop growing consumption beyond certain points where they lead to a collapse of ecological system. That's as far as I would go along with it. But then you need to look at the, the net zero transition. And as, as, as we've just debated, and perhaps that's where Rita needs to come in on that one, while we need to degrow certain sectors, particularly the fossil fuel sector, we need to grow other sectors. Renewable energy, wind and solar power, we need to increase battery production, we need to produce other stuff and, and find other ways of heating our homes. So that's where the, the slogan degrowth becomes quite unhelpful because it, it depicts a scenario that simply says less is more on every front. It's much more about uh, a transformation of the economy where we are able to improve well-being that may inc include some material gains but uh, that also Im uh, implies a certain uh, reduction in certain other activities and so to come back to the car story right there'll be lots of people who will continue to rely on the car but the electric car as someone recently said is not a solution to climate change it's a solution to maintaining the car industry alive and so the, for many people, the solution will be not using a car, finding alternative means of transport. But to make that your sort of overwhelming strategic outlook, I think is problematic. And it leaves behind a lot of people who are uh, politically and for other reasons put off by that. Degrowth, I, I need not 
add that is also hugely unpopular in parts of the world that still feel they have a lot of growth to achieve. So I, I would ask for more nuance there. Um, China, um, very important point. And I think that's where the geopolitics uh, is so important here. Um, it's become common to think about our relationship with China in kind of black and white in binary terms. Decoupling is now seen as an all-inclusive strategy that we need to pursue across the board. That's clearly not going to work, right? We are never going to completely decouple economically, nor should we decouple when it comes to climate cooperation. In fact, interesting enough, the US has carved out or has tried to carve out climate cooperation as one area where it doesn't want to pursue a kind of a antagonistic relationship with China. It was Xi Jinping who is now instrumentalized climate change as part of the geopolitical rivalry, but I think that's short-sighted and is not going to last. I have some hope that the two superpowers will carve out and continue to carve out that, that area of climate cooperation as one area where they're bound together, where common fate rather than uh, mutual suspicion rules their relationship. But of course, we also need to accept that in some areas we are still heavily dependent on China. So that relationship needs carefully, uh, a careful management. It, it, just one thing to say, China is currently the largest producer of a lot of critical minerals, but that's largely by choice because there are a lot of other deposits available in other parts of the world, including the United States. The United States has chosen not to exploit its resources and has allowed China to ex uh, exploit and export them, which you might argue is a very clever strategy of, um, of future uh, resource independence in the hands of the Americans. But that's just a footnote to that. Rita. I haven't got very much to add. I mean, this is sort of a little bit beyond my comfort zone in some ways, you know, all the, the, the significant detail on this. But um, I mean, I guess we can ask in general how wise it is always to be so antagonistic towards China, you know, on part of um, uh, the, the Europeans as well, because in some ways, I personally feel that they have been sometimes dragged into the antagonism through you know, with, within NATO by the Americans in some way. So, um, yeah, uh, it's it's a difficult one. I may come back to the question about the Maldives and then the small island states. I'm sorry, I, I forgot to to raise that. Uh, the question was, what what is the strategic outlook for small island states? Many of them are now threatened with losing not just their sovereignty, but their territorial integrity uh, as well. I think they have given us the answer because there's very little leverage they have in this game. They're, they cannot, um, well, use any form of political or military strength to, to extract concessions from other countries. What they've sought to do, however, is to find strength in unity and have ganged up together, the AOSIS group, the the alliance of small island states has worked very hard and very cleverly at, at putting forward a position of the climate vulnerable countries in the climate negotiations that has really set the tone, but also set the pace in the negotiations for many years. Um, they're not the most influential, they're not the most powerful, but if it wasn't for that group of countries, we wouldn't have got to the level of, of commitments that we have in, in the International Climate Forum, I would argue. 
uh, one shouldn't underestimate the, the, the moral power of the argument they've put forward. And that's quite uh, remarkable. But that is, of course, a very weak position that they've been dealt with. Uh, their hand is not very strong. So I think they have to rely on numbers and, and, and alliances that they formed. Uh, the European Union plays an interesting game, often aligning with the high ambition countries, such as the small island states, when it suits its own uh, strategic calculus, but it doesn't always uh, see through on, on, on that. So I think there's a lot to learn from, from climate negotiations in terms of how you can maximize your moral and political leverage. But um, unfortunately, as is so often said in strategic studies, only some states matter really to the, the balance of power and the Maldives certainly doesn't. Well, on that uh, pessimistic note, perhaps we should come to an end. I'd like to thank both speakers. And when we started this uh, series on st strategy, we were really thinking of long-termism as opposed to short-termism, because the main criticism of strategic thinking in the past 20 years has been we're all very short-term. And when I talk about strategy, I always remember what Britney Spears' manager said after she shaved her head one day rather unexpectedly, was this... Uh, spur of the moment decision or had she been thinking about it for some time and the manager said Brittany doesn't doesn't do strategy <laughs> so a book has just come out and this would be my question to both speakers if we had had the time called what we owe the future mm. um, which is selling a lot of copies uh, and it is promoting a philosophy if you can call it that of called long-termism which is on the understanding that most of human history is yet to be written, given the average life expectancy of the mammalian species, uh, and that most of human beings have not yet been born, that we should think long-term, but it's incredibly difficult to do so. And if you looked at the reviews of that book, by the, the critical reviews of that book, they come up with some very interesting ideas about, as Robert, you said, I mean, rationality, it's our minds and our brains are not really hardwired to think of the long term. And when we do, we always know we're going to find the unexpected along the way. And I would like to have teased you out on that. But if you're interested in the philosophy of long termism, that book is quite, quite good to read. Um, that's enough from me. I just remains to thank our speakers for coming today to thank the audience very much to apologize to those many hands which went up or people whose hands went up, we weren't able to invite them to ask questions. And I ask you once again to thank the speakers. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.